Welcome to episode 213 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. That day that we've all looked forward to has finally arrived. It is Question Cast Communion Edition. Oh, man. We still have to think of a clever title for that. We do, but it's it's going to be great, so we hope that people will stick with us. But before we get to these lovely, lovely questions, there is something that you wanted to bring up first. I do. Speaking of the Society of Reform Podcasters, how do you like that segue? Uh, we are super excited to welcome a new show into the network. So um, this is one of those like niche shows, you know, like there's there's shows that have a really broad topic level and then there's shows that have a really particular topic level. This is a, a show called the Five Points Church Planters Podcast, and it is uh, a couple of PCA church planter guys who are doing a podcast that's basically designed to sort of like get information about pod about podcasting, about church planting uh, out there. So they have episodes talking about like everything from the theology of pod of church planting to the how do you fundraise for church planting. Um, it's it's a pretty sweet show, and I'm I'm excited because you know church planting is one of the number one ways that uh, evangelism actually happens, especially in the United States. So a lot of times people think. Uh, you know, why Why would we plant a church in this area? Because there's already a thousand churches. Well, there's there's a couple reasons. And if you listen to the show, they'll explain that to you. But one of the big reasons is a lot of people end up uh, coming to faith in church plants that either were kind of nominal Christians that were already in a church, um, or they just, they were totally unchurched and they didn't really know anything about churches. So I know um, when I got done with college, I was in sort of like a sort of a wandering in the desert kind of phase, if you want to use that language. And I actually ended up in a church plant. And and the nice thing about a church plant is like, there's no hiding in a church plant because it's usually it's pretty small. And also like you can't, you can't really sit back and not be an active participant in a church plant. So most times church plants have kind of more energy and more, more vibrancy than established churches do. Um, they have their own you know, challenges. So I'm excited about this podcast. I'm excited to welcome it into the network. By the time this is reaching your ears, you should already have access to all of their episodes uh, in the mega feed. Mega feed. Yeah. Great. That's exciting. Yep. That's my announcement. The family continues to grow. Actually, speaking of growing families, how do you like that segment? There you go. Wasn't there also another kind of happy announcement that you wanted there to share? There was. I just got a text message from a listener uh, named Chris Lilly, who just welcomed his second child into uh, the world. So we're super excited. We love hearing uh, stories about um, you know people getting married, people having kids. Uh, I don't want to say it's probably too far of a bridge to cross to say that this is a Reformed Brotherhood baby. It's it's not at all a Reformed Brotherhood baby. <laughs> what, what there are no Reformed mean? Brotherhood babies. I, I'm just playing. But congratulations, Chris. Uh, I know you're, you, you messaged me the other day and told me you were behind on episodes. So you may not hear this until uh, like... August of next year or something like that right. with two young children. But congratulations. It's super exciting. Uh, we're really, really happy for you. So cheers. It's great that we've been at this long. And that was a wonderful simulated <laughs> glass clink, just so you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
the sound effects on this podcast are top yes, notch. I literally held a, a glass up to the microphone and hit it with a pen. <laughs> We've been at this long enough now that it actually is a, a great joy to have listeners, brothers and sisters who are going through life and they're, I mean, this is sound corny, but meeting other listeners, falling yeah. madly in love because of the podcast, getting married, having children, having more children. I know. It's really an amazing thing. So, and maybe I'll, I'll piggyback on what top of what you just said. It's possible. I don't know for sure. I myself have never tried this, but it's possible that if you're looking to have some romantic time with your spouse, that putting Tony and I on in the background might set the mood. I don't know, but it's possible. I, I don't know. I do know at least one listener. And if you listen to our 200th episode celebration uh, trailer thing, at least one listener who uh, kind of met his uh, significant other uh, and sort of like opened the doors to the relationship by giving her the Reformed Brotherhood to listen to uh, Jimmy Hett from Philadelphia. And actually, if I if I'm remembering from Facebook, I believe that they actually just got engaged. So that's I think so. Very exciting as well. So another simulated glass clink. Oh, that one was way better. That was real. That was really good. That yeah, was I got to learn how to hold this glass to not muffle the, the yeah. clink. Although I would say if you and I were in person and we clinked like that, it'd be super aggressive cheers. Mm hmm. <laughs> But this it's is great. True. This is why we do this. Again, it's to get all these voices involved in conversation about theology and worship of God, leading us to doxology and greater understanding, and then, of course, greater service to our King. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Again, we love the question cast theme. And what we put forward as a challenge, the gauntlet we laid down was, send us your voicemails about this series we've been working on, talking about the Lord's Supper or communion. Give us all your questions. We want to hear them. And so I'm happy to say we sometimes we get questions and we have to either pare them down or the representative of a, a larger group. So we take a sample. I'm happy to say in this case, we have five questions. They are five different questions. These are all the questions we received. Oh, so this is great. In the barrel. Because, yeah, we've got the full population here and they run the spectrum. We've got a lot of great questions. So shall we just get after it? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. People got to keep us honest and humble here. Can we do this, Tony, in normal podcasting time? I'm a, I'm a little bit dubious that we're not going to be able to hit these five questions, but we talked about it and I think we're willing to like give it a shot. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to give it a shot, but we're totally going to fail. So <laughs> buckle up for the three hour Reform Brotherhood <laughs> podcast. Yeah. What's great is it, if you're listening to this and you've looked at it on your favorite podcast app or your computer, you know already how long it took us. We don't know in this moment. It's this true. Is, yeah, you're prescient. We don't know. So this is going to be a whole kind of adventure. So let's just do it, shall we? Let's do it. First voicemail. Hey guys, this is Chuck Murphy. Uh wanted to ask a question for the uh, Lord's Supper question cast. And the question is, can you guys discuss Calvin's use of what is called the Sursum Corda and how he related it to his uh, the liturgy of the table? Love to hear from you guys. Enjoy the show. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
So I want to start by saying Brother Chuck has been with us, I think, since the very beginning. Like it's episode true. one, he has supported us. Yeah. And so I want to give him just a little call out and say thanks, Brother Chuck, for loving on us and sending this excellent question. And the question really is, what is John Calvin's sorsum corda and how does it relate to the liturgy of the table? That is a loaded question. This is the kind of question you're probably only going to get on the Reformed Brotherhood version of yeah. Question Cast Communion Edition. So let's start with asking the question, what? What is he talking about here? What yeah. is, you wanna, do you want to explain it first? You want to give like a little summary? Yeah, so I, I will be the first to acknowledge the shortcomings uh, of my theological education and study at times. And I, I knew what these words meant because I studied Latin, right. but I had no like real concept in the context of this of this phrase, like what specifically was talking to. So I actually had to do a little bit of research to, to track it down. So the Sursum Corda, if you've ever been particularly to a Roman Catholic church, which, as we've said, you should not go to Roman Catholic mass. Yes, I understand that it might be a wedding or a funeral, but you should not go. That'll be a, a topic for another time. Um, but if you ever have, or a Lutheran church, or even some more liturgical churches, Presbyterian churches sometimes have this as part of their liturgy, the phrase literally means lift up heart or lift heart. And it's yes. the part in the service, usually around the, the, the time that they're beginning to distribute the elements or as part of the words of institution, where the minister will say, lift up your heart. And then the congregation responds, we lift up our hearts. And then the minister usually says, uh, it is, we give thanks. And then there's a, a response that's something like, we give thanks to the Lord, or it is right. good to give thanks or something like that. And this is a very ancient practice in the church. We have testimony in liturgical practices that go all the way back to like the 180s with Hippolytus of Rome. So it's, it's not a new thing. It's not super, super uh, novel in the church. Um, but John Calvin, particularly in the Reformed world, is known for a very specific reason to have kept this in his liturgy, where a lot of other Reformation traditions either modified it heavily or they removed it entirely. I would actually venture to guess that many, if not most, of our listeners have never actually seen this happen in practice in a church, right. where, where this this has been an element of the liturgy. Maybe we have an outsized portion of of uh, Presbyterians who are in liturgical Presbyterian churches, but I would I would not be surprised if most of our our listeners have never heard this this sequence of things in their service. Right, I think that's fair. And what's interesting is if you look up the Sorsum Corda and you get to this little antiphonal call and response from the minister in the congregation, you're probably likely to say, "What's the big deal here? Why, why are we? Why is the question posed in this particular way?" And of course. A liturgy is kind of coming back, isn't it? Right. I mean, yeah. I see a lot more interest in liturgy generally, and we've often talked about the fact that everybody has a liturgy, whether you make it explicit or not. But in this case, we're talking about a liturgy that's representing some kind of communal response to and participation in the sacred through activity reflecting praise, right. thanksgiving, remembrance, supplication, or repentance. And that is traditionally, I, w I would say, let's say the jam of Rome. And that's just by way of tradition. And so right. what you have here, at least in Brothers Ch Brother Chuck's question is, well, why was this thing being used? And why did John Calvin appropriate it to some degree, but modify it? That's really the question here. And so during like the 16th century, as we talked about before, the reformers tried to purge unbiblical elements, things like prayers to the saints and to Mary from the liturgy. And Luther and Cramer in particular were fairly conservative in their attempts to reform the liturgy. We talked about, again, Luther being Catholic and wanting to reform the church from within. 
And Zwingli and Calvin were much more radical, but all of them to some degree retained this sorsum corda in some form. It was part of their, they wanted to bring this into the tradition of worship explicitly as it related to the Lord's Supper. So in the years like immediately preceding the Reformation, many Christians had believed that the elements of the Lord's Supper were physically transformed. That's the transubstantiation stuff that we talked about. They were transformed into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and that he was therefore to be worshiped in them. So thus developed such forms of piety, such as like the veneration of the blessed sacrament. When you hear those words, that's directly connected to this idea of transubstantiation. So like most other reformers, Calvin did not disagree that Christ is in some sense present in the supper, but he opposed the notion of a localized presence in the bread and the wine. So Calvin's Sursum Corda is a derivative, and it's intended to dispel basically the Roman ideas while trying to take everything that in, that was in it in biblical and appropriate to the biblical language and use it. So can I read his modification of this? Is that cool? Please do. You, okay, you a, have the floor. It's a Thank you, sir. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy. It's just a paragraph, but this will give you a sense of what Brother Chuck, I think, is after. So you heard uh, Tony said already, you, I don't know why I'm saying this, like we're presenting in front of a group of people like a TED Talk, but you said already, <laughs> basically the antiphonal stuff. It's the back and forth, the minister, Lord be with you, all that stuff. So this is Calvin's own commentary on that and what he wanted to modify to make it more useful, more biblical. He says, let us lift our spirits and hearts on high where Jesus Christ is in the glory of, of his father, whence we expect him at our redemption. Let us not he fascinated by these earthly incorruptible elements, which we see with our eyes and touch with our hands, seeking him there as though he were enclosed in the bread and wine. Then only shall our souls be disposed to be nourished and vivified by his substance when they are lifted up above earthly things, attaining even to heaven and entering the kingdom of God where he dwells. Therefore, let us be content to have the bread and the wine as signs and witnesses seeking the truth spiritually where the word of God promises that we shall find it. That's super beautiful, right? So you can see what he's done. He's taken some of the essence of what was being communicated, but he's refined it so that it fits the biblical mandate of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Right. Yeah. And and you can see, you know, Chuck's question is, what does it have to do with the liturgy of the table? Like, how does this all interplay? And, and what, what we need to remember and sometimes, you know, these conversations come about and people will sort of exclude a particular form of words. Now, we obviously want to exclude heterodox, unbiblical her- or heretical uh, forms of words from our services. But just because a particular form of words is repeated or used regularly or traditionally does not mean that that's necessarily bad, right? It, it the, the minister is free within the confines of biblical fidelity to use whatever form of words he wants in addressing the congregation, as long as it's faithful to the Bible. So, so the liturgy of the table is something that is determined by the minister administering the table Right. Uh, in conjunction with the the session, the elders, the leadership of the church, in accord with the statement of faith of the church, which is ideally, you know, and in a perfect world, derived from the Bible. So the fact that there's a particular form of words being used is not a problem. But where Calvin's Sursum Corda comes in, and I think is real specific, and just just to be transparent, Jesse and I are getting a lot of this information from an article on reformedworship.org. So if, if you want all of the specifics, you should go check out that article. Yes, Because it's you. very good. It's not new. It was written in the, in the 90s. So this isn't like, 
like a new issue or a new question. But where Calvin specifically was different and, and, and where it becomes uh, almost cumbersome for us is that he was using this form of words, right? Paul, Paul said to pass on the pattern of sound words. And that probably refers to, in Timothy, refers to a specific body of conf- like almost confessional statements. But Calvin was taking this traditional uh, portion of the service. He was using it in a way where he was reshaping it to teach the people who, we got to remember, all the people that Calvin was ministering to, or most of them, they, they grew up as Roman Catholics. So, right. so he couldn't just use the same patterns of words they had already used their entire lives, or was just going to bring to mind all those false teachings that they had grown up with. So instead, he takes this familiar concept of lifting up our hearts to the Lord, and he uses it to, to sort of transform their view by teaching them what that doesn't mean. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't last week when we talked about the reformed view of worship, we didn't get into Calvin's particular view of how we, you know, our spirits are swept up into the throne room of God, but that's actually a pretty significant portion of it. We're, we're presence where Calvin roots the physical presence of the Lord in the Lord's Supper is not in the elements, which is where the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics root it. Instead, he roots it in the fact that we are transported to heaven in the participation of the Lord's Supper by faith. And so when we when he says we lift up our hearts and we lift up our spirits, he's actually saying, basically, we, we through faith, our, our spirit and our hearts are brought into the presence of Christ in the throne room of God. Right. So we, it's almost like we transcend our physical location, or not we do it, but God transcends our physical location by basically transporting us spiritually into Christ's presence in the supper. And so right this on. isn't just a matter of, you know, we lift up our hearts. It's not some circumlocution to say like, well, we, you know, we pay attention or we think about, or like we praise God. He's using it in a very literal sense of we lift, when we lift our hearts, there's actually something special happening where we're swept into the throne room of God because of what Christ did through our faith in the supper. So that's, I think that's an important kind of correction to, to sort of put into place. And like I said, it's, you know, it's interesting because in our modern day, this just isn't necessary, right? The article that we're, we're kind of relying on here makes the point. It's not necessary because most people in reformed churches don't have the same superstitions attached to the Lord's supper. That doesn't mean it's not ever necessary. I've been to some Lutheran churches and I was, I I referenced kind of an anecdote where I I was all worked up about some spilled grape juice at a a youth retreat camp, right? That was a superstitious attachment that I had. And in a Lutheran context, I wasn't going to get corrected on it. But in a reform context, something like this, where we have a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, which is reinforced by the liturgy that we use, helps to correct some of those superstitions. Right. Yeah, you said it well. I think that's the best answer there is, uh, at least as I could put piece together, is that Calvin was using this or some corda in actually a very loving way. Try yep. to take what was familiar and reappropriate it to be used in a way that taught and that was biblically relevant and had fidelity to the scripture. And so he used it that way. And I think that to great effect. So yeah. we got to keep going. Yeah, one more There's quick more things thought. to talk about. One more quick thought, and then we go. No, no, it cannot I be allowed. To. I have to. <laughs> There's a book that was published. Um, it's by uh, Jonathan Gibson and Mark Ernge. 
Uh, it's called Reformation Worship, and this book is basically a collection of the various liturgies that were used during the Reformation. And I think, you know, we often tend to disregard certain kinds of traditions, but when you have something like the Sursum Corda, which has its grounding in the early church, it, it was not uh, it was not removed by any of the major Reformational traditions. It was re- it was sort of mutated and, and yes. readapted for a different purpose, but it was retained in all of the major Reformational traditions. We should not be so quick to just disregard it as sort of like popish trappings, which I think a lot of people do. Are now we can now? move on quickly to the next question. <laughs> so basically, you're saying what we're saying is it's the redux of the remix, mm-hmm. and it's better. Than the original. It's true. It's got a fat beat. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> on that note, let's move on to voicemail number two. Let's do it. Hey, Tony. Hey, Jesse. Uh, really appreciate your series on the Lord's Supper. installed pattern in uh, Iowa, Vermont. And uh, I had an interesting question. Maybe this, this leans more toward the uh, uh, kind of existential and silly questions. But um, in our previous church, before we uh, were sent out to pastor another church, we had Lord's Supper and we used um, the Lunchable Communion, um, as, as you guys have coined it. And it had an interesting conundrum. Um, our pastor received the Lunchable Communions in the mail, and he didn't open them until Sunday morning. And when he opened them Sunday morning, there was a note on the top of the box that said, uh, oh, but we ran out of red grape juice, and all we had left was white grape juice. So, you know, you can have grape juice versus one. Uh, we had the Lord's Supper with Lunchable Communion and uh, white grape juice to boot. So I guess my question is, um, you know, was that null and void? Uh, I don't believe it was, but maybe, maybe the listeners would enjoy you guys answering that question. Uh, white grape juice... Um, for the Lord's Supper with Plungeable Communion. Thank you guys very much. I really appreciate your podcast and your ministry and uh, love the brotherhood. So unfortunately, I couldn't quite catch the name of the listener here if you dropped it. So I apologize because this brother should get a massive amount of credit because finally somebody has asked like the bomb question, yes. which I think we were hoping somebody would ask so that we wouldn't have to awkwardly bring it up ourselves. Yes. And the question of course is essentially the thing we've all been wondering all this time, what elements are appropriate or efficacious for use in the Lord's supper? Because we've talked about the stuff that's happened in COVID and perhaps everybody else like me has seen people who've said, I've taken communion with Doritos and right. Coca-Cola and we've all wondered, can that happen? Is that okay? And I love, I love the anecdote that this brother gives where he says, this is so good. This is like typical of our times that his church ordered all these like separate communions, which we've been calling lunchable communions. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that term, the lunchable communion. And that there was a note on the top of the box that said they ran out of red grape juice. So they, they said white grape juice instead. And you know he's asking this somewhat tongue in cheek, but I, I appreciate that he's willing to bring this forward for our conversation. And that is, what's the deal with all this stuff? Like, yeah. So let's get after this question of elements, because I think this actually sits at the heart of, it kind of crosses over everything we've been talking about so far. Where do you want to start on this? I don't even know where to start on this. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, we could start in a million places, which is why... This is, we're having our organizational meeting right now in real yeah. time. So let me start by presenting what I think is 
the best form of the argument in favor of a specific kind of thing for communion. Okay. So, so this usually takes the form of someone insisting that in order to properly administer the Lord's supper, you must use some form of alcoholic wine in order for it to be proper. And this may sound nitpicky and pedantic. And we've kind of poked fun at like this Roman Catholic notion that if you have bread that doesn't have gluten in it, that it's not actually bread and that can't be transubstantial. Like we've poked fun at that and we'll get to that in a minute. But the, this form of argument is rooted in an understanding of the regulative principle of worship, which we'll talk more about in, in a question that's going to come down here. But the basic thrust of the argument is that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, used two very specific elements right. to institute the supper. That element was bread and it was not grape juice because grape juice did not exist at the time. It was not right. possible until Louis Pasteur invented pasteurization sometime in the 1800s. I could be totally wrong on that. I don't know why I thought I needed to put a date on that. It just exposes me to error. Anyways, until Louis Pasteur came along and invented pasteurization, and we understood germ theory, grape juice didn't exist because the second you crush grapes, the yeast from the the skin of the grapes gets in in the grape juice, and it begins fermenting immediately. So there's never a point, realistically, where grape juice does not have some alcohol content. And so... The argument goes that since Jesus used bread and Jesus used wine, he instituted the the supper with those specific elements, and thus we should follow and use only those elements. And it's rooted in an understanding of the regulative principle, which argues that we should only do what the Bible commands. And since Jesus commanded that we use bread and wine, we ought to use bread and wine. Now, I say that because I think that's the strongest form of the argument that they have, But I also say that saying, I don't think that's a particularly strong argument for a particular kind of substance in the supper. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does actually make perfect sense. Uh, By the way, because, you know, we're just, we're getting, we're going to go far afield on this episode. So we might as well just lean into it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I just had to look this up because I, I wanted to say this, but wanted to confirm it first. So Thomas Bramwell Welch you might know him as Welch's grape juice. Yes. He was the dude that apparently invented grape juice. He was a Methodist minister. Leave it to the Methodists. Uh, I mean, literally that was like a a bad joke, but method grape (laughs) juice. And, uh, but he, to your point, he was the first one to basically invent a pasteurization process, which would allow grape juice to stop fermenting. Because I said this before, everything wants to become alcohol. Give it enough time. Everything wants to become alcohol. So, but this is a really good question because exactly what you're saying is like, I think what we basically have to parse out here is how much do these things, the elements, these specific things that you said really matter? That is like, does it matter that it's actual bread? Is there any circumstance where you could honor the spirit of what's happening here, so to speak, and use different representations while at the same time following the regulative principle? And this is the hard part because, you know, many people will say, Many churches have statements like, for instance, uh, it's with the grape juice thing. Many will say, like you just said, well, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the springtime, again, which is during the season of Passover. And that means there was not any fresh grape juice available to him. So it was undoubtedly fermented, like it was right. hanging around for a while. And it's also clear that the saints in Corinth used fermented juice while celebrating communion, because how else would Paul have the right to say, you guys have become drunk all over the place. Right. So it's clear that it's represented there. 
And then we get into the whole unleavened bread thing and the Lord's Supper is instituted in conjunction with the Passover. So many will say, well, here, that's a clear indication that then you have to use unleavened bread. But then doesn't the Apostle Paul write in Corinthians that Christ is really our Passover? It's not the communion itself. And he talks about instituting it after supper. And so there's all these elements. So we have to get to the bottom of, can we do this with other things that are not bread and wine? And so let me start by saying, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I think the answer is yes, but it's qualified. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. And, and the qualifications are difficult, right? It's, yes, it's not, exactly. it's not easy to parse out That's all why I of left these that part specifics. To you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. So, so before we, before I go on, I want to just say, and I want to throw it out here, all of the arguments which are used to justify the position that only alcoholic wine is acceptable for use also serve to prove that only unleavened bread is is exactly you know, it, has it has to and, be has to be that and way. And so, I want to just say, and I don't want to make this a big argument about opposing that view, um, but I think that the people who are hung up on and maybe this is maybe this is uh, projecting a little bit. Most of the people that I've run into are who are really really hung up on the fact that alcohol is necessary are the same people who spend a lot of their time trying to justify why it's okay for them to consume alcohol. That's not a bad thing, right? But the 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 you know, it's funny that you mentioned Welch because the next stage of the argument usually is, well, and you know that grape juice in communion is actually invented because of an unbiblical prohibition of alcohol, which is true. Like that's right. a true statement. Yes. But that has nothing to do that. That is a total, the, the technical term is a non sequitur. It's a, a total fallacy of introducing a, a bit of information or a bit of evidence that has nothing to do with the argument. So what I want to say as, as a reformed Christian, right? We talk about how this, this is about the sign and that which it signifies. Right. And so one of the things we have to remember is that there are certain things that are fitting symbols for other things, right? We, we could say um, that this, this book that I have on my desk is the blood of Christ, right? I could somehow say that if you, if you liquefy this book and drink it, that we're going to use that for communion. But this weird liquefied book doesn't have any connection to what it signifies. It, right. it just doesn't. And so what we have to remember is that the the main, maybe not the main emphasis, but one of the biggest emphases in the reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper is that these are symbolic elements. And so there are some things that are more fitting than other things to do this, to do this symbol, right? Exactly. Um, Baptism, we use water instead of sand, primarily because the Bible tells us to use water, but what it signifies and what the Bible explains it signifies has to do with things like a flood, right? right. The Bible uses the, the the description of the flood and what happens in the flood to signify this. Sand doesn't wash away anything. It makes right. things more dirty. And so sand is not a fitting, a fitting symbol for what the symbolism of baptism is trying to accomplish. And so likewise, when we choose the liquid that we're going to drink for, um, for communion, for the Lord's Supper, or when we choose the the bread that we're you know the the physical part that we're going to eat the solid we're going to eat, we have to keep in mind the symbolism of that. So it's funny because I asked one of the OPC pastors that I know this question, and he actually was quoting he knew um, 
uh, Scott Oliphant, or not Scott Oliphant. Um, uh, um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Hughes Oliphant Olds, Olds Oliphant, whatever. He asked Oliphant, which is one of like the major reformed authors in liturgy and, and worship and stuff like that. And, and what, what he said was, it doesn't matter what kind of wine you use, use the best wine. Like sure, you should get right. really good wine because this right. is a celebration, right? So everybody, everybody clues in on a little bit of a different, uh, a different aspect of the elements that we're using in terms of the symbolism. Calvin actually said white wine is not as fitting of a symbol as red wine is because this is intended to signify blood right. and red wine, sig- red wine calls to mind the reality of blood more effectively than white wine does. So in the specific context of this questioner, the red grape juice calls to mind the the redness of Christ's blood more significantly than the white grape juice does. But Christ also says, I won't eat of the vine again. So like right. grapes are grapes. They all grow on vines. So I, I think we have to be careful on this because I don't necessarily want to say it's a total element of full Christian liberty. But the session, the, the elders, the leadership of the church should choose elements that are fitting for the symbolism that they're trying to convey. Yes. Right. And so it's difficult because, you know, when we talk about the word wine in scripture, there was no wine that described unfermented grape juice. The closest thing that we have to it is a word that means new wine. Sometimes they talk about new wine, which usually refers to something that has a very low fermentation level because they're literally talking about wine that was freshly squeezed and it has in mind like wine that literally just came out of the grapes. Uh, There's a passage, I think it's in Isaiah, but it may be in one of the other prophets where it actually talks about the wine that's still in the grapes. So this word used for wine could still refer to unfermented grape juice, but that didn't really exist. They didn't have a concept for that. So we should be right. careful about making these etymological arguments for this. But I think in the long run, we just have to consider, and this is something, like I said, it's up to the wisdom of the session. We have to consider what the symbolism in the supper is, and then act accordingly, choose the elements we're using accordingly. Um, most of the time when people say that you can use Doritos and Mountain Dew, or they do that at a youth group event, the underlying supposition is that the symbolism almost doesn't matter. And that's wrong. So we have to kind of reject that element of it. Um, I love Les Lanfear. Him and I have gotten into this argument about wine versus grape juice probably a hundred times. And he's asked me uh, probably a hundred times, well, what stops you from using wine, uh, Doritos and Mountain Dew? Well, what stops me is that that's not a fitting symbol right? That is a consumer good that's designed to sort of tickle our passions, not a staple of our diet, right? You know, bread and wine was a staple of the diet in Israel. So it might be in some cultures they use, sometimes they use like coconut milk and like rice, rice, like rice bread, because they're trying to get at the idea that this is just the common elements we have on our table. I don't know that I want to go there, but we can exclude certain things like Doritos and on Mountain Dew because the arguments that support them are not good arguments according to what we believe is true. Right. So in other words, I think what we're saying is the ideal situation would be to get as close to as possible to the things that Jesus actually used in his own administration of the supper with the understanding that if you get too connected with those, those actual elements though, what you've actually done is gone into some kind of weird transubstantiation void or twilight zone. So 
you need to ex- sit in that tension because I would argue that the place, if you're having the conversation about whether or not we can use Doritos or M&Ms and cotton candy or any of those things, like you right. said, you're probably in a place where you've just misunderstood what's happening with the Lord's Supper. And you might ask, why are we even in this place? Like if you truly cannot get these elements and you're that far along, like it's almost kind of like a continuum. Like you start with bread and then you're like, okay, for some reason we can't get bread. And let's, let's say, presuming you're administering this properly, which we're going to get to that in a minute or two, you just start walking down the list of items, but you always right. want to be as close to possible as the ones that best represent what's happening here with the body and the blood. So I think your answer you gave is great. And I think, can we just admit though, that for instance, like the lunchable communions are pretty awful. Like the yeah. elements are not, do not taste good. Well, and that, and, that, that's like a whole separate thing. And this is, this is actually something that I think needs, this maybe is a subject for a future episode. I actually think we have to, we have to look at what the Bible actually says is important in the symbolism. You and I have talked about this. The Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that every, everyone is eating from a common loaf. And that common loaf, we call it communion, not just because we're communing with God, but because we're communing with each other in this common loaf. So, so lunchable communions, although they're, I don't want to call them an evil, but I'll just use the phrase. They're kind of a necessary evil at this point in time for a lot of churches that are concerned about safety and, 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 you know, spread of illness. They're kind of a necessary evil, but they don't, they don't start out as a common loaf. So it's, it's one of those things, and this maybe this is going to trigger some people, and I don't care. Uh, it's one of those things that I think sometimes <laughs> you can see the strength or weakness of someone's argument and their conviction of the argument based on elements of it that they ignore. Right. For sure. So, so I, I don't mean to call out any specific person. I certainly do not have less in mind when I say this, even though I referenced him earlier. Um, I do not have him in mind when I say this. Most of the people I've interact with who insist on wine do not insist on unleavened bread, even though that is the the element that Christ had on the table because he was yeah, yeah. celebrating a Passover right. meal. So either he was sinning by celebrating the Passover with leavened bread, in which case none of it matters because we're all lost in our sins, or he had unleavened bread. So the fact that their argument doesn't extend over to the bread or that it doesn't extend over to a common loaf versus a, you know, a pre, a pre, you know, several different loaves. That tells me that the argument, either they don't understand the implications of their argument or more likely they actually don't believe the full effect of their argument. They're not willing to follow it to its logical end. Um, I've actually interacted with people and I won't use names because I don't have permission to do that. I've actually interacted with people who insist that it has to be served at a table and that that the the person distributing it should be seated at the table because that's the posture that Christ would have been sitting in even though we know he would have been laying but th- th- there this can go too far as well and so right. Normally, I don't like these kind of hypothetical situations where someone is stuck on a desert island. But in this particular case, I actually think it's useful. So let's pretend that there was a church missions trip, right? So you've got an ordained minister. So that part of it is taken care of. You've got a sufficient number of of Christians that you can say, right? You can say that there's (laughs) enough Christians to form a church, right? Let's say a missions trip of 15 people and their pastor, ordained pastor, were... Uh, they crash on a desert island, 
right? And there's no hope of them ever getting rescued. For some reason, they know they're never getting off this island. So they say, well, we're just going to start a church. We're going to continue our practice here on the island. We've already got our ordained minister. He can elect elders. We can vote on it so we can have a proper church polity, right? (laughs) In this situation... So specific. (laughs) There's only... Let's say there's only... There's only coconuts available and some sort of wild rice, Right. So we can't make bread. We can't make grape, grape based wine. I suppose technically we could ferment the coconut milk and maybe it would be wine, but we, we can't make wine. <laughs> I don't think any of us in that situation would say those believers never could celebrate the Lord's Supper. Of again. course. Right. And, and the fact that we say in those circumstances, there is an allowance. We, we can recognize that the elements are not available to them. It's just not, it's not available to them. Yet we would still say, I think most people would still say they can use what they have available and they can make as close of a fitting symbol as they can. And they can celebrate the Lord's Supper together because it is not actually the substance that you're consuming that is is operative. And that's, that's why we make fun of the Roman Catholic Church. By saying like, well, if there's no gluten, it's not actually bread and you can't trans, you know, the priest can't transubstantiate non-bread into Christ's body. We laugh at that, but there are a lot of reformed Christians that I think actually kind of take that perspective of like, well, if it doesn't have alcohol, then you're not really doing the Lord's Supper. And I've, I've never actually, I shouldn't say never only once or twice in my life. Can I say that I've ever participated in communion where there was alcoholic wine as the, the, the liquid substance of the, or the liquid element of the the Lord's supper. So that person would have to say to me that I've only twice in my life or three times in my life actually participated in the Lord's supper. And I don't think they would say that. Right. So I think we, we have to be careful. There's freedom yes. and the session should act wisely yes. in choosing elements that are fitting to the symbolism. You know, that might even get down to, do we use a sweet wine? Do we use sweet grape juice? Or do we use something that's a little bit more bitter? Like those are things that need to be thought about. And it actually it actually ties into the last, the last question, right? Calvin's Sursum Corda was, he took something that was there and he used it for a teaching purpose. If you have a congregation where for some reason they're all about the levity and the joy of the gospel and they never, ever want to think about the bitterness of the law, the hard edge of the law, as Jesse likes to say, then maybe it makes sense to use a really strong, bitter wine that reinforces with them. Look, this is the cup of wrath that the Lord was drinking. Right. This is the death that we're sharing in. We're not we're not sharing in sweet Welch's grape juice or a light rosé wine. Right. We're drinking hard, bitter red wine. You shouldn't enjoy it all that much. Right. So so I think that (laughs) that should be something left up to the wisdom of the session. And I think we should be careful of casting too strong of an aspersion on other churches that are seeking to honor the idea of the Lord's Supper, even if they aren't necessarily using the elements that we would choose. Yeah, I think that that's fair. There's like two camps here, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, let's timestamp this now. This is going to be the longest episode ever. But moving on from that point. Oh my goodness. Uh, I just looked at the clock. Never look yeah. at the clock, podcast. Yeah, do not look at the clock anymore from this point forward. Uh, I agree with you. Also, like halfway through there, it, it turned into almost like the Reformed wine cast. Like yes. the, your ability to like draw from different flavors and profiles of wines. I was I was very impressed. I was very, I thought you were going to use the words like oaky afterbirth very soon. I mean, let, let's just be honest. Like I, I've been drinking a glass of scotch with this drink, with this podcast. Now, 
some some scotches have grapes as part of their con- their substance. Like some, yeah, could true. I use scotch with the instead of right. instead of wine with the Lord's Supper? Well, those who want to insist on wine means fermented grape juice. Well, right. okay. Well, then you could make an argument that some scotches are fermented grape juice. Could yes. I take a Dr Pepper and crack that open and let it ferment and use that as my as my you know like I don't like those are the questions that I think if we get too too bogged down on the specific element in play and lose the fact that the reform view is about symbolism. It's about participating in a sign and focus on the the fittingness of that sign. Those are some of the, I don't want to say they're dumb questions because they are important to help us understand what we're getting at. And I appreciate the people who are trying to wrestle through the implications of the regulative principle. But I think sometimes we just get bogged down in this stuff and we actually lose sight of what the reform position actually puts the emphasis yes. on. Yes. I Listen, I agree with you. I had no idea we we're going to get so fired up over wine. I also love that. So oh, I 100% one point, knew we would. Well, I also appreciate it. at one point you were like, I've only had, I think you said something like I haven't, I've only had like alcoholic wine, <laughs> like non-alcoholic wine, which would be grape juice. But right. the, the funny thing about this is, or let's say the irony is, uh, maybe this is a good way to sum it up, I think, is I think what we're saying here is it is about the heart of the matter here, which is about properly symbolizing what's taking place here and honoring the Lord in that symbology. And so because of that, we should try to get as close as possible. But my fear is that sometimes when we get as close as possible, then we get caught up in the elements themselves and we start to appropriate the elements as meaning something outside of the symbolism. And then we've committed another type of error that we never intended to do so in the first place. You know, we need to remember that, we're talking about like water, table, bread, cup, gestures, words. These things are so ordinary as like the daily presence of God is ordinary right. to to us because God is good to us. And so to paraphrase John Calvin, we, we can't take God at full strength. And that's why he, God comes to us through these ordinary things. The Lord's Supper is dinner with Jesus. It's a meal we take with God on the Lord's Day with the people of God. Right. And so if we started there... I think we would do away with a lot of this error. If if you're already getting to the point where you're saying like, can we use Doritos and Coca-Cola right now? I would argue probably you've already violated the regular principle way beyond that point, like far away. You can't even see the line anymore if you're asking that question. And so I, I think there's probably very few actual legitimate reasons where you have to go to coconut wine and what was the body in your rice, example? Rice, rice bread, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you're probably, would you say that's fair? Like you're probably, normally speaking, generally, in all the cases, like well beyond the mark there. If you're, if you have to get to that place, hopefully you're legitimately in that place. I think what we're saying is there is a legitimate place for that, but it's probably few and far between. The examples are very, very rare. Yeah. I want to just close this before we go to the next uh, question. <laughs> I just want to, I want to read Calvin on this because I, one of the things that I think happens is people don't recognize what the Reformed tradition historically has actually said. So here's here's Calvin. I'm reading this off the Heidel blog. I have no reason to think he didn't quote this correctly, but it's uh, Calvin Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 17, Section 43, and he says, But as for the outward ceremony of the action, whether or not the believers take it in their hands or divide it amongst themselves— or severally eat what has been given to each, whether they hand the cup back to the deacon or give it to the next person, whether the bread is leavened or unleavened, the wine red or white, it makes no difference. These things are indifferent and left to the church's discretion. So Calvin obviously didn't 
didn't understand what grape juice was either because it hadn't been invented right. yet. But Calvin's point is that the outward elements of the the supper more or less are indifferent and should be left to the discretion of the, the ministers of the congregation, which is exactly what Jesse and I are saying as well. Well done, man. We're going to answer all these questions. We will not stop. Are you ready for another one? I am. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Hey, guys, this is Josh from St. Louis, Missouri. Just finished your uh, episode over, shoot, uh, the Reform View. And uh, my question for you guys was you were discussing how we can live with not having communion during COVID, unlike Roman Catholics and Lutherans, if I'm understanding you guys correctly on that. Um, So I'm kind of new to a lot of the Reform views, but wanted to know how that plugs into the regulative principle. Uh, Like, how can we be cool with not doing it if it's prescribed? communion um but yeah hope my question makes sense looking forward to some further explanation on it cheers so brother josh is right on this and i want to affirm him in particular because it sounds like he's starting to process or getting acquainted with some of the doctrine and the theology of the reformed tradition yeah and so i love how thoughtful he is already especially as he's new to these things because he's asking is it really okay not to participate in communion during covid19 under the regulative principle. And so for those who maybe are not familiar with the regulative principle or just hearing this for the first time, let me summarize it really quickly so we have a sense on something on which to stand. So this idea of this regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions in scripture. We've already, that's why I cried out like, spoiler alert, early on in your example, because we're, we're basically going to get to this now. We've kind of right. already set it up to some degree. And the reformers, I mean, John Calvin, especially, and actually the Westminster divines as representatives of like 17th century Puritanism, viewed the matter of corporate worship really, really specifically. And in their view, a general principle of obedience to scripture is insufficient. So let me say that again, because evangelicalism basically supports this point. A general principle of obedience to scripture, that's not sufficient. There must be and is a specific prescription governing how God is to be worshiped corporately. And we're going to bring that into how the Lord's Supper is administered and practiced. And so that's why this question is really, really good. Because in the public worship of God, specific requirements are made and we are not free either to ignore them or to add to them. Right. And so typical in this formulation are words from Calvin. I'm going to quote him here. Calvin says, God disapproves of all modes of worship, not expressly sanctioned by the word. And then even, even I'll say it this way, that amazing document, the second London Baptist confession, 1689 says, and I quote, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may be not worshiped according to the imagination devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way, not prescribed in the Holy scriptures. So that's a setup for this question because Brother Josh is right on the money here. He's basically asking, listen, if we made a case about how basically Roman Catholics could really not observe the Lord's Supper unless they're present together in mass, and we're drawing over from the fact that God prescribes specifically how to worship him in the scriptures, then how are we also not violating that even when we say COVID-19 might legitimately preclude us from participation? Yeah. So I want to read uh, question 50 of the Shorter Catechism. And it says, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, what is required in the second commandment? commandment, And it says, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire 
all such religious worship and ordinance as God hath appointed in his word. So if you break that down, what that means is that we receive it, meaning we we are not the originator of it. It's given right. to us by God. So we receive it. We observe it in terms of we practice it and we keep it pure and entire. So the, the key to the regulative principle, and sometimes people... Uh, people characterize the regulative principle as saying, well, you can't do anything that's not commanded in God's word. And that's true. But it also includes, you must do everything that's commanded in God's word. And so the root of the question that Josh is asking is basically, if we're commanded to practice the Lord's Supper, then on what grounds do we suspend it for a time? And I think that's a really, really good question. Um, and it's something that I think every session uh, and every you know leadership, elder board, whatever, has had to wrestle through uh, in this pandemic, not just around the Lord's Supper, but around things like singing, around things like meeting on the Lord's Day. You know, how do we how do we navigate this? One of the things that we have to keep in mind specifically about communion is there is no specifically prescribed um, frequency for the Lord's Supper given right. in Scripture. And so when when um, when that happens, when there either there's ambiguity, we assume that that part of what's going on is left up to the wisdom of the, the ministers of the church. And so we would say that communion is an element of worship, meaning that it is, it is constitutive of worship. It is something that is non-negotiable. It's prescribed in terms of its form and its function, but the circumstance of how often, uh, where in the service, uh, um, how frequently, um, what kind of role it plays in the service, all of that is left up to the discretion of, uh, the session. So John Calvin, again, we're going back to Calvin a lot here. I'm not hundred percent sure why, but Calvin wanted to do the Lord's supper every week because he believed that as often as, you know, the, the, the words of institution say, as often as you eat of this, eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And so Calvin's argument was we should be doing this as often as we meet. And then as often as we meet, we should be doing this. However, the leadership in the city of Geneva disagreed with him and thought that right. it should be it should be practiced monthly, um, and and so he submitted to the will of the city to the will of the council and they only did it monthly in Geneva, and and the the basic principle is unless the Bible specifically commands us uh, a specific frequency or a specific um, part of circumstantial issues then we are free or the leadership of the church is free exercising wisdom according to biblical principles. And, and this is important And the, the Westminster uh, confession says this according to the light of nature, right. and then also the laws of, of government, right? So in a, in a situation like we're in now, the light of nature may be teaching us. It's not wise for us all to take off our masks and, and, put our fingers in our mouth and drink out of these little cups. Right. Right. And so the churches are exercising their discretion in some cases to say, we're only doing this once a month. We're only going to do this once a quarter. We're not going to do this at all. And, And because the scriptures do not command a specific frequency, we are free to make those determinations. I think yes. the same goes with singing because I know like our church has gone back to zoom worship. We've gone back to remote, remote congregational gathering. Um, even before that, there was a few weeks where the the infection rate in our area really spiked and new information was coming out from the CDC that specifically linked the act of singing with an increase in transmission. So we made as a decision, as a, as a uh, leadership team, we decided not to have congregational singing for a time. And the reason that we're free to do that is because when Paul says, 
teach one another singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He does not say teach one another singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs every single Sunday. Right. He says teach one another singing psalms, uh, you know, uh, song, psalms, songs, and spiritual songs, hymns, and songs. I'm getting well all said. mixed up. So where <laughs> where are those areas in Scripture where we're given a little bit of freedom, where the specific interval or the specific circumstance is not defined, then we are allowed to make those decisions based on prudential wisdom in conjunction with what the state is telling us, in conjunction with, you know, just general wisdom. Another parallel example might be if I, and, and now this goes to kind of the individual side. So I think there's another element of it. Do we as individuals have the right, even when the church is doing communion, do we have the right to abstain according to our own conscience and convictions and concerns? Right. Yeah, that, that's well said. I mean, I, all I can do is is maybe add to that a bit by saying, I think I agree with you. The macro prudential reasoning here is paramount. I actually see in this, even in the prescription that the scripture gives us for worship, especially as it replies to the Lord's day. And then in this particular case, the Lord's supper, there's something about that there where we see the, like the, just the benevolence of God, like his, his great mercy in that the scripture is clear enough to give us that instruction, but yet allows for this type of circumstance so that it reinforces what loving kindness looks like. We've talked about the sixth commandment, speaking not just about taking life, but about fostering and promoting life and how in this, in this particular season in which we're living, that's so important to understanding and honoring one another and influencing our behavior and transforming the way that we think and then the way that we correspondingly live. And so you might also flip this on its head, this question, and say something like, well, who then can actually obey the regular principle when it comes to Lord's right. Supper properly? And I think we would say really only this reform perspective because it's right. getting right the symbology is getting right. The fact that practice is something that in terms of with frequency is allowed circumstance according to the scriptures while yet not offending or coming against what the prescription is. All of that I think is, is super important. So I, I think this is, this is really the beauty of God because really we might also ask, well, if we try to in, in creating some, so if we try to honor this frequency that we prescribe in our minds, not the scriptures, but we give a frequency, I actually think that also can result in some kind of strange error. Like we've talked about, well, what about can you do communion then distance wise? Can right. you do communion like what, what, like what's the word we're looking for? Like um, remotely. Yeah, remotely. Thank you. Like, can you do Zoom communion? Let me just ask that. I'm going to ask you first. Can you do Zoom communion? No. No, that's what, that's what I was going to say as well. So, wow, that's like the shortest answer that we've yeah. had on this podcast so far. We'll talk more about that in another question. So that's why I'm keeping it short. Oh, see, good. We're just, we're basically all about trying to not spoil future questions. So can we move on then? Is that cool with you? Yeah. I just want to answer real quick that hypothetical that I posed though. <laughs> so I love this. Every time I say, can we move on? You're like, yes, but, but let yeah. me say this one thing. Go ahead. So th there's also the element that I don't know that Josh is specifically asking this, but I think it's important to sort of say there's also the element of can I as an individual choose not to participate in the Lord's Supper, even if everyone else, even if the church, it's, you know, the ministers of the church are, are offering it or are administering it. Oh, and I so, think, so about this. Sorry, I thought you were making a statement. I know you were actually asking me that question. My I, bad. Otherwise I mean, I, I guess I was kind of like theoretically asking it, but why don't, why don't yeah. you answer that one? Well, OK. So, OK. Wow. So let me say this. I would say. So wait, what's the circumstance? If it's being offered, and what? But here's right. the question: so, so Why would one be refusing about, it? Like, 
does the does the church have a right for a time or or for whatever reason to not do the Lord's Supper? Which yeah. we answered yes. But I think there's also an, another side element that's particularly important in our context. Right. If let's say I go to a church and they're doing the Lord's Supper and it's a common loaf and it's a common cup, everybody's right. drinking out of the same chalice. Uh, and I'm going, I see. What we're you're all going to get COVID you. and die. Can I, I can I just let that cup you. pass by me? Got you. Yeah. So I'm going to say, given the circumstance, yes. I thought you were going somewhere slightly different, which is like, can I just decide for any reason in particular not to participate? But you're, but you're talking about in light of a legitimate circumstance right. in its administration of the right. actual elements themselves, which might pose risk. And again, I think this goes back to like six commandment style. So I'm going to say, yes, you would have good rights appropriately right. and with good conscience to refuse it. Right. Yeah. And a flip side might be, you know, that you're sick. Let's say it's not COVID. Yeah. So yes. you're, you're not, you're not required to self quarantine, um, but you have an illness that could be transmitted, you know, by saliva and it's a common cup. You sh- not only can you, but you should out yes. of love for your neighbor and love for your Christian brothers and sisters, you should let that cup pass by you. And, and I think, you know, that comes down to, that comes down to, there's this, I don't want to call it attention. There's uh, like an interplay between the, the, the liberty and the, the discretion that a session or a group of elders or a leadership team has. And then also the discretion that each Christian has as individuals. Right. And so, so this is the section out of the um, Westminster confession that I was quoting. Um, now I lost it. Uh, it's, it's uh, chapter two, which is the section on scripture and it's section six. It says, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. This concept of the light of nature, it's not just some ethereal thing out there. Like that's a specific term that means a specific thing. There are certain principles which we are taught by nature that the church is to use in how they govern various elements of the church, how they organize the service. The fact that people are unlikely to be able to come and stay awake and be focused at midnight. So maybe right. we should have the service at 10, right? Right. So so those are the kinds of things they're talking about. But in the section on Christian liberty, there's also language that calls to mind that same concept that each individual also has to, in light of the light of nature, has to make decisions about how they're going to order their own personal lives. And so in circumstances like we're in, or just in general circumstances, if you're in a church and someone next to you has a cold sore that you think is is maybe contagious and that's a common cup and you go, I don't think that I should use that same common cup as this person. You're not sinning by letting that pass by you. And this right. is where it's key. This is what I talked about last week. The reform view has as a strength that we recognize that God is not conscribed or constrained to this cup or to this exactly. bread. God is free to issue grace however he sees fit. And although we affirm there is a special place for the Lord's Supper and God, it is a special means of grace, which God grants to his people. It is not the end all be all of everything. We are missing something real if we don't participate, but we're not missing something that is an essential part in the pun, yes. an essential part yes. of Christian worship. We can, yes. we can worship without the Lord's Supper. We ought not to whenever possible, but exactly. it is possible to do so. We're in the Roman Catholic view. And I would argue in the Lutheran view, if you follow it to its conclusions, that's not really the case. Well, it can't be, right? right? That, that's partly what we're saying. I think if, if anybody gets anything out of all these questions, one of the themes is that this gives great insight into your theology. If you start with making, conscribing the elements, it, and again, I think we use, I've used this example before. 
it's like hitting a golf ball, like slightly off the mark. It's, it's really close to the mark when you're 10 yards out. By the time you get 150 yards out, the golf ball is so far afield that you're no way on the fairway. That's right. the, basically the way that I play golf. And yeah. so because of that, if you start with these elements and get caught up in that they have to be a specific way, otherwise they are not efficacious, then everything else, that already show, says to me that the theology is really far skewed because right. we started in the wrong place. So I'm going to break my own rule. Let me give one more practical example with this. <laughs> this at this point it's all gone. It's Don't, gone. Listen, it's all gone. everybody, everybody, take a deep breath, brothers and sisters. Take a deep breath with us. Don't look at the clock. Don't look at your watch. Don't look at how much time is remaining. Just, just come with us. The on beauty this of podcasting is that you can pause us and come back to us later. <laughs> that's, we're that's we're true. still gonna be here when you leave work. I know you just got to work and you're yes. expecting to finish this on your exactly. ride in. We're still gonna be here in eight hours when you get done. With exactly, work. and we're gonna carry you through your work commute. All week long. If yes. in fact you're still commuting to work, <laughs> we're going to take you there and back all week long. But here's a practical example is that oftentimes, well, sometimes let me say it that way. Sometimes when the Lord's Supper is being administered, I'm going to be totally transparent and candid with everybody listening. Uh, I'm participating in music and I'm literally playing during the time of contemplation and during the time sometimes when there's actual the eating and of the bread and the drinking of the wine. Sometimes that means that I honestly miss an element because right. of that. And so I've never felt convicted based on what you just said. I, I, I follow the same argument. I've never felt convicted because obviously in every circumstance we want to participate and we, we ought to. And yet there will be times, whether through sickness or otherwise, where we might legitimately not be able to participate. And I think we need to be at liberty with that as the scripture teaches. Yes. But just like Paul says, it's for free you've been set free, but not to take advantage of that freedom. So right. this is not like license, just go wild and say like, for whatever reason, that you just don't want to do that. Right. The, what we're basically saying is like, yes, get after it, participate. And yet there may be times when legitimately you're precluded from doing so. And that also is okay. Yes. I agree. Is that what we're saying? Are we, are we done with this question? I think we are. Did that just happen? All right. We got two more. We're in the home stretch. We're going to bring it home. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Here we go. My name's Eric out of Phoenix, Arizona. Had a couple questions for you. Uh, one, I see a pattern in the Gospels when Jesus is offering the elements. Jesus offers his body, bread to be broken, and then a cup of wine as a covenant, new covenant in his blood. Is there any exegetical correlation of eating Christ's body as a confession of holy breaking the old covenant and being cursed to cannibalism? such as eating a body mentioned in Leviticus 26, verse 29. And then going on from there, when Jesus offers the new covenant in his blood, is there any significance there? Also, the second question would be, since the resurrected body of Jesus was ascended to heaven, could there be any exegetical correlation of the blood, wine, body, bread, and any of the portion of the sacrifices that were usually reserved for the priests. I appreciate it, brothers. You have a good day. So our brother Eric also asks what I think is a really insightful question. And let me say this, just with all these questions, do we not have like listeners that are like excellent readers, really thoughtful, really trying to piece together theology? Like, would you say that, that we're just blessed with really wonderful 
listeners who are concerned about things in the scriptures? Yes. Yeah. This is a question that can only come about when someone is reading the scriptures carefully and is attentive to themes and topics that seem to be running across the, the, you know, the breadth of scripture. So kudos, kudos to Eric for seeing these linguistic parallels, seeing different thematic parallels that are coming up and making connections. So kudos to Eric for careful reading of the scripture. Yeah, right on brother. So is there any significance in eating Jesus's body as breaking the old covenant? Since of course, cannibalism, like we talked about, was banned in Leviticus, according to the Old Testament. And I, I do see where Brother Eric is going here. There, there's something almost of like a implied genius in that Jesus might be saying, well, this is my body. And so if you eat this, you're automatically aligning yourself with me and you are therefore breaking this Old Testament commandment. And so it's clear now where your loyalties lie because you've basically broken the rule. And I think the only way this works, unfortunately, is if we fall into the camp of transubstantiation, because the only way this is actually cannibalism is if this is actually Jesus's body. What what say you? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think I would put Lutheranism in that same and and then branches of Anglicanism in that same. um, We haven't talked about Anglicanism, but parts of Anglicanism that affirm transubstantiation. I think that they might fall under this kind of a concept. Um, and that's actually a weakness in the position. Um, as much as I want to affirm careful reading of scripture and absolutely do, I also think that at times we, and I do this, I do this a lot where I, I think I see a connection and I'll run it past Jesse or one of my other, uh, kind of confidants and they'll kind of go, no, I I don't think that that's actually legitimate. I don't think you're seeing that. So we all do it at times. I think sometimes we can overread some of these linguistic parallels And I think in this case, trying to make some sort of um, conclusion that Jesus is forcing the disciples to sort of like break their allegiance to the old covenant, I think that may be a bridge too far. And what I mean by that is we would have to actually uh, either say that cannibalism is not a part of the eternal moral law. Right. Uh, which would mean that it's okay for us, <laughs> right? If, if cannibalism, cannibalism is in the category of uh, binding under the old covenant, but not under the new, then it puts it in kind of the same category as like eating bacon. And and I don't know that I can go there. And I don't think that Eric is going there, right? I don't think that that's where he's going. Exactly. exactly. But if we put it in the category of only binding in the old covenant, then we can't say it's part of the moral law. Because remember, as, as Reformed Christians, we affirm that the moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is binding because it's the way of things, not because it, yes. not because God implemented it. Just it's is reality. the way of things, right? It's reality. It's it's woven into the fiber of what it means to be righteous. That there are certain things that we just don't do. Um, cannibalism is actually an interesting question because uh, it's not actually super clear in the Old Testament that it is always in every circumstance. Uh, forbidden uh, things like if you're trapped on a desert island and somebody dies of natural causes, is it better <laughs> to eat the body than it is to starve to death? Right? right. Those are those are live questions that are beyond yes, what we're enough. getting at. But even on the presupposition that cannibalism as a whole is forbidden by the Old Testament, we would have to place that as part of the ceremonial law or the civil law if we were to say that Christians are not bound by it. So right. that that presupposition I don't think I don't think that that flies. And then on top of that what we would have to be saying if we do say it's part of the moral law is we would have to say that not only was Jesus 
commanding his 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 followers to break the moral law, but Jesus himself participates in the Lord's Supper, right? Exactly in in the communion. So there's a whole host of presuppositions that sit under this question that I think when you start to kind of pick away at them, they fall apart. And you're right, only really in the Catholic the the transubstantiation view, and maybe in the consubstantiation view, does this, is this even a, a question for asking? And in both of those situations, Jesus himself would be sinning by breaking the old covenant, yes. which is then, as I said earlier, then none of it matters because we're all lost in our sin anyways. Right. right. And I think that's a point we made when we talked about right. the Lutheran view and transubstantiation. I perceive this question as somewhat of a curiosity. And again, this is a safe right. place. We, we ask for these kind of questions because this is really good. He's trying to basically synthesize different parts of the scripture. And so, of course, I totally agree with you. And he has kind of an addendum to this is he asks, you know, since Jesus ascended into heaven, is there any exegetical connection to blood, wine, body, bread, and any portion of the sacrifices reserved for the priest? And again, I think he's right to go on this train of thought. It's good to throw this out for conversation because we've spoken already, or at least we've hinted at this idea that even the Lord's Supper is in some ways a reflection or a carryover of the Passover meal. Right. So how much of that can we carry into like what was happening with the priests? And again, here, while I think that the question is great, and the, the ability to try to synthesize and make connections is well intended. I think as well, this is probably overreaching just a little bit because I think the beauty of this is that what Christ is doing is he's taking something and he's transmuting it. He actually does it with all things, doesn't he? Like he's, right. he's taking the law, he's fulfilling it, he's taking worship and he's fulfilling it to such a greater degree that it no longer looks like the thing that preceded it. And yet it still has some of the, pardon the pun again, some of the elements of the thing that actually preceded it. Right. So here, once again, I would say, I don't see a particular direct connection to those things as represented in the sacrifices reserved for the priest. I think there is in a way, a, a spirit or representation of here. We're seeing a shadow in the old Testament and we're seeing it come to its full glorious kind of fulfillment, even in Jesus Christ administering right. it in the flesh literally like him giving this and expressing something about his, his body and his blood, by the way, before I have you weigh in on this real quick, can we also just mention real quick that I have this big issue. I've said this before on other podcasts, I have this big issue with the, this is my body broken for you because only in the King James to say broken instead of given you want to weigh in on that or are we just moving on? <laughs> I think we can move on. I mean, I, I, I understand where you're coming from on that. And I, I think, again, we have to be intentional and careful with the patterns of words that we use, particularly, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I think all of us have to be careful of that, but particularly those of us who are in some sort of leadership capacity, whether yes. that is a, a person who's, who's assisting with musical worship. We've talked about this in, in the songs that they choose. They're literally putting pe words into people's mouths with which they worship, or yes. especially the people who are ordained to ministry, who are, um, who are representing God to the people. I think I, I'm not as, as uh, um, worked up about the broken, not oh, broken um, part of it. Um, I'm fired up. I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't I'm know that. It, All right. Well, but, but because we're going to cover this, we're, we're like uh, stealing the thunder from the last one. So, but, but what, so what say you though about this idea of like, again, this external connection and like the sacrifice reserved from the priest? Like, yeah, do, I think do you have anything there. I think it's an interesting question. Um, but I think I agree with you that this may be a little bit of an instance of overreading the text. Um, 
I was reading Ezekiel this morning and it was interesting. I did kind of the same kind of thing as, as what Eric is doing. Ezekiel is commonly called the son of man. Like that's a, that's a term that God, God calls Ezekiel the son of man all the time. And so in my mind this morning, I was doing my devotions. I was reading Ezekiel. I'm trying to figure out, all right, does this phrase son of man here, does this give us any connection to Christ and his use of son of man? And the answer that I came up with as I was thinking through was maybe, maybe because Christ is a prophet and this prophet is called son of man, maybe there's right. a connection, but there's a lot of things that are said of Ezekiel that we ought not to say of Jesus in Ezekiel. Right. So exactly. I think that we have to be careful. You know, there's only so many words in a language and, and not every time that a word is used. Um, sometimes people who are really into redemptive historical preaching or biblical theological preaching sometimes can fall into this trap where like, you know, like a word is automatically calling to like, you can cross-reference every passage right. that uses the same word. I don't know that we can go there. A good example of this is uh, when Rahab puts the the thing outside of her window to, um, to signal to the troops of Israel that sh this is Rahab's house and you shouldn't kill the people inside. It's a scarlet, it's a scarlet thread. And more than one preacher, I think, has fallen into the trap of turning this into like right. over-investing this meaning. I've heard it. Well, it's just like the scarlet that was painted on the door of the Israelites house in the Passover. And of course it's scarlet and our sins were washed away. Like I've seen that. And yeah, maybe it's there. It's an interesting connection, or maybe that's just the color of thread that, that Rahab had. Maybe that's right. just what she had on in. Maybe the walls were a particular color that the scarlet stood out better. You know, we, we should be careful of making those connections. And I think that this question kind of falls into that. And again, I think it comes to the presuppositions that have to sort of sit underneath this question that sort of give us the answer. Yeah, the, Lord's, well the Lord's Supper, as we talked about in the very first episode of this, it's a meal celebrating a sacrifice, but we would not affirm that it is itself a sacrificial meal. Right. So the Roman Catholics do, the Lutherans in a certain sense do, so, so this might work for them, but um, we have to be careful because this would work fine if this was truly a sacrificial meal, because we're the priesthood of all believers, and so we're eating of this sacrifice. Like, you can see where those connections are, but because we don't affirm that this is a sacrificial meal, and rather it's a meal celebrating a sacrifice um, or remembering a sacrifice— then maybe we should rethink the framework a little bit. I, yeah, I think, exactly. I think, like I said, I want to commend Eric for careful reading of scripture. Yes. You can't even come up with these questions unless you are thinking hard exactly. about the scripture. And as we like to say, unless you're marinating in it, you would never get to this point unless you're spending enough time in scripture where these connections start to happen organically in your mind. So kudos for, uh, for careful and intentional reading of the scriptures. I don't want to undercut that at all. But I think in this case, we probably are on a little bit of the wrong course. No, that's, I think that's uh, very fair to say. What was going through my mind is there's some production company, I can't remember what it is, but uh, after like every episode of whatever they produce, there's like a little cartoon image of a doctor and it says, not a doctor, not a doctor. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So all I kept hearing was Shh, not a sacrifice. That, yes. That's not going to, that's not going to land with most people. So right. if that was just something that you were like, wow, that was a complete waste of my time. I apologize. No, we're we're going to move on shortly. Yes. Let's and we're going to get to the last question. This is it. Question number five. And yes. I think you should get ready to go back to the island Oh, man. With the coconut wine 
and the rice bread and the possible allowance of cannibalism, because yes. I think that's going to come up in this question. So here we go. Question number five. Here it is. Hey, Tony and Jesse. My name is uh, Justin from Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, I uh, first off just want to say that I'm, I love the podcast and, and loving the, the, the Lord's Supper series that you guys have done thus far. And definitely looking forward to the uh, to the question cast. I had a uh, question on um, Westminster 27.4, uh, which says that only a minister of the word lawfully ordained uh, may um, administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I come from, uh, or my, my church is what you would call a, a Plymouth Brethren church, which, uh, if, if you're not familiar, um, allots a, an open sharing format, if you will, uh, prior to the breaking of the bread, where any man in the congregation can stand up and say a word, and then any man can, uh, at some point within that time, uh, pray for the bread, and then it's broken, and then, and then administered, and then another man can stand up and pray for the, the cup and uh, allow that to be administered, which is something that I have become increasingly uncomfortable with over my years being at this church. And so uh, I, I suppose I have a, 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 twofold, um, a twofold question. One, if you would be able to provide a, uh, a, a theology from the scriptures of ordination, and how that fits into uh, only those ordained ministers being able to administer the Lord's Supper. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you. So Brother Justin asks a beautiful question, and actually, we basically like spoiler alert ourselves all the way along this episode, because we've touched on it, and I'm so glad that he just brought it up outright. And I actually really appreciate the way in which he positioned this question, because He's expressing that he's from a tradition. He actually attends a church where there's, and this is going to be my word, not his, but there is some democratization of the administration of the Lord's Supper by way of praying over the elements. So they have this time where they're praying and they're worshiping, and then any person can basically pray for the bread or pray for the wine as kind of the way of administering or starting the administration process of that element in the Lord's Supper. So he asks a really delightful and super important question, and that is, so what's this theology of ordination as it relates to administration of the Lord's Supper? And he quotes the WCF 27.4 by saying, only a minister lawfully ordained may minister the Lord's Supper. And just like we talked about with Brother Eric, I want to affirm one thing before we get started here, and that is, I think Justin has got some mature, like biblical muscle memory here, because there's something he's sensing where this kind of communal praying or somebody, anybody could pray over these elements and start the process. He's getting this kind of like bristling effect, like something doesn't seem quite right with this situation. And so that's what's led him to ask this question. And it's a really, really good one. So how would we quickly talk about like the theology of ordination and how that pairs with the Lord's Supper. Well, some of that you've already said. So draw from what you've said already in this conversation to kind of pull that into this question. Yeah. So what I want to sort of like think a little bit broader, because if you read this too narrowly, you end up with these little micro denominations that don't recognize anybody else as having ever done the Lord's Supper. Right. right. So let's just take Presbyterianism versus Baptist polity. In Presbyterianism, ordained men ordain other men. And what that means is 
ministers who are lawfully ordained, which is what the, the Westminster Catechism or Confession is saying, ministers who are lawfully ordained into this office need to be examined and approved by other men who are also lawfully ordained. Right. So if you follow that to its logical extreme conclusion, and I don't mean extreme like it's an extreme view, but I mean like all the way to the end of the logic, that means that no Baptist minister is lawfully ordained, which means no Baptist minister has ever baptized anybody, has ever administered the Lord's Supper. Right. Most Presbyterians that I talk to would say, no, 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 that's not that's not what we're getting at. Right. On the flip side, Baptists would argue that ordained men are ordained by congregations. So at the same time, not a single Presbyterian minister was ordained. Well, I suppose this probably isn't true, but not ordained by a local congregation, by the polity that they're serving. Right. So if we follow this to the extreme, we we run into these really weird uh, implications that I don't think any of us would ever actually affirm, which either means the arguments are not consistent, which is possible, or it means we're misunderstanding something that's going on. So when we talk about ordination, broadly speaking, what we're meaning is a person who is appointed to serve in an official capacity by the church. Right. So, so that may be a deacon. It may be an elder. Uh, it may be someone who's hired by the church. All of these are official capacities and, and there are regular principles, questions that get into mind about can, can we create sort of church officers that aren't in the offices, you know, sub officers, commissioned people. There's all sorts of questions that I don't want to get into. But broadly speaking, only people who are appointed by the church to commit an official action should be involved in the administration of the Lord's Supper. I don't mean carrying a plate down the aisle. That's that's not administering the supper. That's just right. handing that's just yes. handing it out. Right. But the sacraments specifically or the ordinances if we want to use that language, they are actions not of individuals acting as individuals. They are actions which are engaged by the church as the church. They're institutional uh actions that are partaken of by the church and every institution that takes an action does so through an authorized agent of some sort. Yes. Right. So, so when you go to the bank and the bank teller takes money out of your account and gives it to you, it's because they are an authorized agent to do that. If they were not, if it was just some Joe who walked off the street and somehow knew how to use the computers and gave that money to you, that's not a valid transaction. It didn't actually happen. You would be required to return the money. If you didn't, it'd be considered theft. There's all sorts of implications of that. Likewise, if some, some schmo off the street who had no power, according to the state came and said, I now pronounce you man and wife. You're not actually married, right? There's, there's an agent that's responsible for that. And so the, the, in the Presbyterian tradition, it's the men, the teaching elders specifically, who are ordained by other ordained men right? Uh, who are authorized by the church to partake in this action as agents of the church. That's really important. In the Baptist tradition, it tends to be uh, the sort of the senior executive pastor or the teaching pastor of the church. Um, sometimes it's the elders. If there's a situation where maybe you have a guest preacher who's, who's in and you still want to do the Lord's Supper, Maybe the elders can do it in our church, for example. Um, our pastor administers the Lord's Supper. He's the one that kind of is presiding over the the elements and the distribution. Um, he's the one that that sort of gives the words of institution. He fences the table, which in our congregation is just basically saying, if you're not a believer, this isn't for you. Right. But he then prays he, over those elements too, right? Right. Well, and then and then he delegates to me and and to other, you know, in uh, we we only have me as a deacon now. Our elder has stepped down for all sorts of reasons, but we only have me as a deacon. He delegates 
uh, usually I pray over either the cup or, um, or I don't really pray over it. I pray before we distribute the cup or before we distribute the bread, but that's delegated to me. We wouldn't necessarily just say, all right, whoever wants to pray for the cup should stand up and pray for the cup. Um, so I think we have to be careful. We don't want to get too narrow on defining what ordination is because then we define everyone else out of the church and that's that's not right. But we right. also can't say like well just anybody can do it. As yes. anybody should do it. Um so I think we have to we have to remember that that that's the key part of it is the the sacraments or the ordinances are an official action of the church. And that means that they have to be done by someone who is an official agent of the church acting on behalf of the church. That may look different in different traditions. Some traditions, it's much more democratized to use this word. In some traditions, it's much more specified in terms of like a particular person, uh, an ordained officer. Um, Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm with you. It's never capricious. In other words, I think is is kind of where we're trying to land to some extent. And this is really a question about two things in my mind. Agency, which you covered exceptionally well, if I don't mind saying so myself. And the second would be like really the nature of the church or ecclesiology, because I think part of what we've kind of hit on a bunch of the questions so far today in our six is that in contemporary evangelical circles, it seems to be almost widely assumed that the supper may be observed outside the visible institutional church. This is a part which gives us some of these questions, which get us into trouble, things like Doritos. And so the notion that there's no, or let's say the notion that there is a true church has in some ways been rejected by many evangelicals who sometimes place a greater emphasis on individualism. And so I think actually some of this, my thoughts on this come from Reginald Scott Clark, because he talks about what what matters is not like the objective validity of the church and her sacraments, but the subjective spiritual state of the Christian and the quality of his religious experience. So because of this, it's become common for modern evangelicals to observe the Lord's Supper or some weird derivative privately at home or in a small group Bible studies and in these extra ecclesiastical or parachurch kind of gatherings. Right. And what we've, I think, tried to emphasize this entire series is The sacraments are not magic, as Rome would have us understand them. They're not just recollections, as Zwingli and some modern evangelicals would have us believe. They're external signs and seals appointed by Christ himself and used by the Holy Spirit to testify and to seal as a seal to believers about the truth of the gospel. So the Bible sets forth like exactly the things that you just stated, which is, Our Lord instituted this Holy Supper in the context of the Passover and ordained his disciples, that is, those who would become his apostles to observe and administer the supper. And so the apostles were there as representatives of the visible institutional church. So only an ordained minister, and however we define that, of the gospel has the divine right and prerogative of ministering the sacraments. Only an elder is able and lawfully authorized to exercise the duties of an elder. And these elders are called or ordained of a particular church, which leaves room for the governmental different persuasions, which you just spoke about. So I I think we're after here is that agency matters and that this is such an important thing that it does require an agent, somebody who is lawfully ordained to that office, or then as, has delegated that appropriately. But it really is never the kind of thing where we gather a group of people together and we just kind of say, well, let's just see what happens organically here. Whoever feels compelled or starts to pray or feels moved in a particular direction. This is far more important than that. And even Jesus Christ set that example in the way that he administered himself. So again, question of agency and of ecclesiology. And once again, maybe the theme of this particular episode is 
this just reveals so much about our presuppositional yes. theology. And so what we do is we start with asking the question that we think is important. And this is an important question. Like, I love this was asked. And so you can see, like, we're starting with like these, these end things, like we're in the leaves of the tree. And what we find is in order to answer the question, we actually go, have to go all the way down to the roots. So let's just start having the conversation at the root, which is the reason why I think we wanted to put forth this whole series to begin yep. with. Yeah. And, you know, I'll add one more thing. The, the, we haven't talked about this much throughout this series, but one of the, um, I don't want to call it an innovation because it certainly isn't an innovation. This is obviously coming from the Bible. But one of the things that the Reformers recovered, both in the Lutheran and the Reformed tradition, and then the, the Anglican tradition, which follows, the sacraments are meaningless unless there is also gospel preached, which explains what the sacraments For are. For sure. If absolutely. I walk up to you in a church building and hand you a piece of bread and you eat it and neither of us share a word with each other, there's no possible way that can be the Lord's Supper. Right. So so the preaching of the word, and, and I don't mean that in the lowercase p sense, I mean that in the upper K official office bearer preaching of the word must accompany the Lord's Supper in order for it to be the Lord's Supper. And so if you follow that same line of logic, you simply can't have the Lord's Supper unless there actually is the preaching of the word. And you can't have the preaching of the word unless there's someone who is ordained to preach it, right? How, how can they be saved if no one preaches to them? And how can they preach if no one is sent? It doesn't say if no one goes, it's if no one is sent, right? right? So there's, there's a sending element of preaching that has to accompany the word, the, the, the sacrament in order for it to be sacrament, in order for it to be the Lord's Supper. Now, I also want to say this because, because the question came up about, you know, virtual, virtual Lord's Supper. I actually think it might be possible to conceive of a situation where that actually can happen, where, where all of the, all of the bread starts in the place that the, the pastor's at and, and, you know, the congregation, you maybe have runners or something who bring, you know, a very small congregation where you bring the elements out to all the people's houses. But here's the kicker. We don't need to do that. Right. You know, sometimes the question comes up um, about bap this comes up more commonly in baptism is somebody will ask the question, well, if, if you were if you had a child who was just born and it was clear they were going to die, uh, would you baptize them yourself or would you be OK with just leaving them unbaptized because you couldn't get a pastor there in time? It's kind of what kind of poses this catch 22 where like, well, your theology says only a pastor, only an ordained pastor can baptize but you got this dying infant. What are you going to do about it? And the answer is that presupposes a special kind of efficacy yes, in baptism exactly. and a dependence on the outward administration of baptism to communicate grace in a way that somehow God can't do otherwise. Yes. And there's a similar kind of thing going on with the Lord's Supper. As this as this pandemic stretches on and newsflash everybody, it's going to be worse before it gets better. Right. We've been living right now in New Hampshire. We are at a higher infection level by almost three times as much than we were in March when we were all locked in our houses. And it's like that all over the country. So we're now we now many of us thought we were going to be back to normal by now. And now we're actually just going into an even more severe form of restriction that we're going to have to deal with to keep ourselves safe. But this is the beauty of the reform perspective on this. And th exactly. this will this will be the last thing I say about it. We are not dependent on the outward administration of the Lord's Supper to reap the benefits of the covenant of grace. That comes Amen. to us directly from Jesus. And so even though he has given us these elements, this bread and this wine, to, to signify to us that covenant and to participate in it through them, 
we are not dependent on them to do so. And so all of the questions about could you conceive of a situation, some sort of crazy arrangement where you could actually make it work remotely? Yeah, probably. I could probably figure out some way to do that in a small congregation. But I don't need to. I don't have to do all of that because the Lord is to be worshiped in spirit and truth, not in these carnal carnal ways that sometimes underlie a lot of the questions that come up about this kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree. These yeah. these are all wonderful questions. And of course, they are all well-intentioned because we're asking these as we're trying to really sort out, delineate, parse what it means to put this stuff into real practice to actually as we are fond of saying, I don't know which one of us is at this point, put some shoe leather on our theology <laughs> and actually walk out into the world and use it in a way that's meaningful. And that, of course, comports with reality. We just talked about right. that. That's the beauty of the scripture, isn't it? That God has given us instruction on the way the world really is. And part of that extra instruction comes to us in dictates about how to celebrate, and it is a celebration, the Lord's Supper. And so I love these questions because they're all well-intentioned. They're coming from that place. And one of the great things I think we can do with questions about specific application is we often should ask not only the question itself, but then we should stop and say, why am I asking that question? What is it behind the question that wants me to get an answer to it? And I think oftentimes we stop and do that for a second. We meditate a little bit on the reason behind the question. We find that there is a direct route to some theological principle that we need to really understand that it's betraying in some ways, not in a pejorative sense, but it's illuminating. Maybe it's a better way of saying it why it is we're asking this thing. And so there's been so much of that here. In some ways, I hope this has validated why we started the whole th- series to begin with. Like yeah. it was for us to really process and to think about the Lord's Supper, why we're doing it, what it means, and how we practice it in all days of age, but particularly this really strange season in which we find the world where gathering together is for some not an option yeah. and for good reason. So I hope that people will be excited about continuing to pursue holiness and piety in their practice of the Lord's Supper in a way that gets to the essential nature of what we're doing here as we literally sup with God's people and with Jesus Christ. And this is one of those things for me that it's like a mind that you can just not get to the bottom of. There's so many wonderful jewels, so many things to turn over in your, your hand and to look at under the microscope and to just appreciate. And yet just when we feel like, well, I think it might be empty. We go with the pickaxe and we take another swing and we find there's just a whole nother chasm for us to go into and to study and to look at. So we're not pretending that we've reached the bottom here. This is definitely not the definitive episode on the Lord's Supper, because there's so much we could say. And really, at this point, I think we both agree that even just with looking at hypotheticals and the island of rice wine, no, sorry, coconut wine and rice bread, that there's so much we want to say. And yet we also know that by this point, you've driven back and forth to work four or five times. <laughs> so we need to we need to wrap it up. But I want to say thank you to all those uh, brothers in this case who called with questions, who were brave and confident and courageous enough to ask the things. And some of them posed them as hypotheticals to say, I'm okay with this, but what would you guys say yeah. to this? I love those questions because you know that we're all just thinking about it. So thank you for being willing to ask them. Yeah. Well, that is as good a way to end it as any uh, 90 minutes into this 60 hour, a 60 minute, it's a little Freudian slip there, this 60 minute podcast. So Jesse, (laughs) until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.